0: And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles today to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading with verse 41 there. That's page 1576. Page 1576. And if you're thinking this is an awfully strange passage, if you're going to start talking about human sexuality and the bride and the lamb, um, you're right, it is kind of a strange passage for that. Um, We're just uh, setting the table this morning for for what is to come. And I have mentioned this last week. Um, I think I can use your prayers over these next number of weeks. We all can as we study this uh, this subject together. Um, We also will have some opportunities to sort of discuss after worship uh, what's been said during the worship service. We won't be able to do that this morning, uh, but coming up, Hopefully, at least uh, many of the weeks that we'll be addressing this topic will also have opportunity during that adult ed hour um, to talk a little more if you desire to do that. I also plan to have a list of some resources for us as a congregation to to read through and to engage on um, if we want to study this topic more ourselves. And we hope to have some recommendations for life groups as well, if, if your group would like to... Um, discuss this topic further. Well, let's, uh, let's turn to Mark 12 right now. We'll begin reading with verse 41. You may want to keep your Bibles open today as well. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the written Word of God is an incredible thing. I mean, it's, it's God's revelation of himself to all of mankind. However, sometimes I wish that we had or still had the oral tradition to go along with the written Word. I mean, aren't there just times where you want to know not just what was said, but actually how it was said? Let me try and give you an example. I heard Neil Planinga once point out that <clears throat> the very words that you emphasize in a sentence can make all the difference in how you actually might interpret that text. And he used as an example Psalm 137. This is a psalm that has mystified God's people probably for centuries. Let me just read to you the last couple of verses of that psalm. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Now, when you first hear those words, especially with our 21st century sensitivities, we, we almost can't believe what we're hearing there. I mean, why would the psalmist ever equate happiness with, with killing babies? We just can't begin to get our minds around that. We can't believe something like that would be in the Bible. But now, let me read you that passage again and just change the emphasis a little bit. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. You hear the difference that that makes? Where you first might think, where in the world did that ever come from? Suddenly you begin, I think, to hear the pain, to hear the helplessness of people in captivity. Me, move it forward a few years, move it to a place like Auschwitz, and listen to someone who's survived the death camps say something like, How would you feel if it were your children in the gas chamber? I will never be happy until I find some sort of justice for what was done to us. Now, that might still offend our Christian instincts a bit, but hopefully we begin to get a better understanding of the pain that's written into that text see how helpful it might be at times to have the oral tradition the oral word to go along with the written word when you don't have that oral word you have to look at the context and see if you can pick up the tone from the context Mark 12 is another one of those examples, I think, where it would be so nice to understand Jesus' tone as he is speaking here. And I think uh, it was Scott Jose who tuned me into this. But he simply asked the question, what do you think Jesus' tone was when he watched this widow putting in her last few coins into the temple treasury? Was he happy about that? Was he proud even, perhaps? Was he saying, look at her, she put in everything, everything she had to live on? Or perhaps was he sad about that? Or even angry about that? She put in everything, everything she had to live on. Which do you think it was? You know, over the years, um, this poor widow has sort of become an icon in the church. She's become an emblem of generosity, right? I mean, she put in her last two pennies. What, what devotion to God she had. She's caused many of us a lot of guilt compared when we compare our giving to what she gave, right? And we've heard many a sermon tell us that we ought to be givers more like this poor widow. In fact, I think I've even preached sermons like that, and I'm still amazed at how badly I missed the point. Like I said, as interpreters of Scripture, when you don't have the oral tradition you have to look at the context and try and understand what's going on here. And so let's look at the context of this passage a moment in Mark 12. Mark 12 is a, is a passage in which the religious professionals come to Jesus, testing him, trying to trip him up, trying to find some sort of fault with him. And right before our text, Jesus warns the crowd about people like this. And he says in verse 38, if you still have your Bibles open, he says this, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Now, did, did you catch that? They devour widows' houses. Is that a good thing? You think Jesus is happy about that? No. And it's immediately after that statement that they devour widows' husbands. Houses that Jesus positions himself opposite the temple treasury and he calls all of his disciples over to him to watch. And he points out in front of them this poor widow. And as they watch, he points her out and says, she's putting in her last two coins. Everything she has to live on. Friends, what we have here is in this widow, is not not an example of model giving. This is an example of a widow's house being devoured. This is an example of how corrupt the temple cult has become. It's an example of how backwards and upside down sometimes we get things. Let me try and explain that. If there is anything that's repeated in Scripture from cover to cover, it's this idea that God loves and protects and watches out for the little ones in his kingdom. And he wants his people to watch out for and protect them as well. In the Old Testament, there's an entire class of people who are represented by this phrase, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens who are within your gates. The widows and the orphans and the aliens who are within your gates. These are the vulnerable ones in every society. And in the Old Testament, they represent the humble people. The ones who look not to themselves, not to their own strength or their own ingenuity, but they look to God for their help. They depend on God. They are the humble the humble ones are the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. But it doesn't stop there. They're the little children, the lonely, the oppressed, and the sinner. To these belongs the kingdom of God. We, we heard that over and over in the Gospel of Luke, right? Right? These are the ones that God says we must especially watch out for, especially take care of. Israel was supposed to be a model to the nations, a light to the world in how well they cared for this particular group of people. But here in Mark 12, we see that things have degenerated so far that the very teachers of the law the ones who have been entrusted with these truths, the very teachers of the law, are not providing for the poor, but they are bleeding them dry. They're saying, keep giving, keep giving. The Lord is happy when you give. Keep giving. They're not providing houses for the widows. They are devouring their houses. In other words, what Jesus is looking at in the temple in Mark chapter 12 is a religion that's been turned on its head. It's become the very opposite of what God intended it to be. And what we have to ask today, friends, is how could something like that ever happen? How could that have ever happened? And further, how is it that still today, even today, we still think that Jesus is holding up this widow before us as some kind of hero, as someone to emulate, and we end up still heaping heavy loads on the very poor widows that God commands us to relieve their burdens. It's a humbling realization, friends, just how wrong we can get things sometimes. But history has proven that it happens over and over and over again. We all have heard about how slave owners used to preach to their slaves all the texts on submission. And we've all heard of how Christians in the Nazi party Spread the idea and believe the idea that the Jews were a subhuman race, somehow more responsible for Jesus' death than the white Aryan race. In other words, we've gotten it wrong in the past, what the Bible has to say about such things. And today we face another one of those critical moments as we try to determine what the Bible has to say about sexual minorities and about human sexuality in total. This June, the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church is going to discuss this matter further. Other denominations have already discussed it. Some have been split apart by it. Families have been split apart by it, not just churches. And our culture has been discipling us and our children in one perspective already for years now. In other words, it's an important time. It's an important moment for all of us. And as Christians, we need to get it right. We need to get it right. And so in the next few weeks, we're going to study this topic of of human sexuality We're not going to be able to do it exhaustively, but what we do, I want us to do through this lens of Mark chapter 12. And so I'm going to use the time we have remaining this morning to explore how Mark 12 can help us as we engage on this very important topic, okay? So the first thing I think we can learn from Mark 12 as we approach this topic is humility. Humility. And I mean this in two senses, all right? First of all, since we have gotten issues like this wrong in the past, we have to ask, could our tradition be wrong on this topic as well? Could it be that we've always read the Bible through the eyes of the majority? Could it be that we've made assumptions that we should not have made? Could it be that our prejudices have led us in our thinking more than the Holy Spirit has? Humility, I think, demands that we ask these questions. Mark 12 demands that we ask these questions. Second, I think humility demands that we do not create some kind of fishbowl atmosphere here. Um, I think that's what happens in Mark chapter 12, okay? Jesus points out this poor widow, and all of a sudden, all eyes are on her. The, the focus turns to her and to her actions, and we forget about what? We forget about ourselves, However, the true focus in this text is not on the widow and it's not on her gift, but it's, it's on the teachers who have clearly missed the teaching of God's word, the truth of God's word. The focus isn't as much the widow as it is, how am I supposed to live in relationship or in relation to this widow? This isn't a fishbowl story, it's a mirror story. It's asking me, am I, am I caring for the widows the way I'm supposed to be? Jesus is holding up a mirror to reveal our own sins and our own guilt. He does a very similar thing in John chapter 8 when, when the Jewish leaders bring before him a woman who's caught in adultery, right? Another sexual sin. And you can just see that situation. The Pharisees bring her in, and and all of a sudden, all eyes are immediately focused on her, and there's this big circle around her. All eyes are on her, and her sin, and her guilt, and what does Jesus do? He immediately changes the whole situation, the whole focus, and the focus now becomes on the crowd when he says, whoever is without guilt, let that one throw the first stone. Jesus turns the lens on us. And I think we have the same situation here today. Our temptation, friends, throughout this series, is going to be to take all of the sexual minorities and place them in the middle of the crowd so that the rest of us can throw stones at their sins and their guilt. And friends, we're going to do our best not to do that not to create a fishbowl kind of environment here. In fact, we're often going to turn the mirror on ourselves. So I hate to say it, but all of us are going to, be, are going to feel a little uncomfortable in this series. We're going to turn the mirror on ourselves. We're going to probe our own sexual sins just as much as the sins of, of, of someone else. We'll focus not so much on the widow but on how we ought to live in relation to the widow. So that's first, humility. Humility. Second, I'd like us to think in terms of providing houses for the widows and not devouring houses. Providing houses, not devouring them. What I mean is this. Jesus accuses the religious leaders of devouring widows' houses. The widow's house, we have to understand, was a safe place. In fact, it was like the only safe place that she had. It was her security, and it meant that she belonged. She belonged in the community. If you took a widow's home from her, you took all of that away. All of that social security, you took her safety, her security, that sense of belonging, you took away her place. She no longer had a place in your community. And I don't want to do that in this series. I don't want to take away anyone's place. In fact, if there is any, anywhere, any place that a person, person should feel is a safe place, it's in Jesus. Jesus should be the safest place we can run to. We cannot devour widows' houses. You know, as I as I've been reading and, and studying for this series, one of the, the stories that I come across, I've come across again and again and again, is the story of, of some young person or a little older person who comes to the realization that he or she is attracted to someone of the same sex. And they don't know what to do with that. They're confused by it. They don't understand it. They don't know who to talk to. And so they finally work up enough courage and enough trust to talk to someone like their pastor or their parents or a Christian friend. And when they do, you know what happens? In so many cases, and I pray this is just a minority of the cases, and we don't hear about all the good ones. But the stories you hear again and again is that person being told, you know what, you're an abomination, and you don't belong here. You can't be among us. And their houses are devoured. And they don't know where to go. And so they turn to a community, the only community that they think accepts them. And it's not the church. Friends, we can't devour people's houses, and practically, what that means, I think, is we have to be we have to be sensitive to who's in the room when we're having this discussion. Okay, and that means who's in this room, who's in um, your life group, who's in your family room. We have to be sensitive to who people are and what's going through their minds because we don't know it's helpful to me to think of think of all the people sitting around the table at a holiday meal okay and when a topic comes up like this you you sort of you have to recognize all the different thoughts and perspectives that might be there around the table you try to be sensitive to all of that right first first there's grandpa Right, who feels there's already a conspiracy that's going on in the world that people are trying to turn everything that's black and white into gray. right? And, and he just wants to hear for once the church or somebody around him say, no, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And then there's mom just to his right. And she feels, yeah, that maybe the Bible is clear on these topics, but she wishes that it wasn't. And then there's Aunt Beth who's single and although few people know it she's also gay and she's trying very very hard to remain celibate but she needs people around her to support her to love her. And she sits across from Uncle Bill who's who's a homophobe and is always looking for more ammunition to add to his assault weapon of a of a mouth. And then there's Jamie who hears about all of this stuff at school and whose best friend just said that she was transitioning to be a boy and that she was actually attracted to Jamie. And Jamie doesn't know what to do or think or who to talk to. And she's wondering is this a safe place? Her big brother Sid is away at college most of the year and doesn't want his parents to know that he sleeps with his girlfriend almost almost every weekend. And he's feeling all sorts of guilt, but he also tries to rationalize the whole thing away. They're all sitting around the same table. They're all sitting in this room. And friends, we can go on and on thinking about all the different people who are gathered here in most cases, we can't see the sins and the temptations that we struggle with. And so we want to make sure that when we talk, that we communicate that the church, of all places, is a safe place for strugglers and sinners. That we make or that we send the message that no one here is perfect. Perfect. And this is a place where we can bring all of that brokenness to Jesus so that he can forgive it and he can fill our lives with the love that each one of us ultimately longs for. We all need a place, but not just any place. We need a place in Jesus and let's make sure that we don't close the door to those who need him most. Let's not devour widows' husbands or houses, excuse me. The third way that Mark 12 can help us with this topic is to teach us the authority of Jesus. Okay? The authority of Jesus. Mark, in Mark 12, Jesus holds the teachers accountable for knowing or not knowing Jesus. God's Word. They should have known what the Bible said about caring for the widows, the orphans, the aliens within their gates. And what's more than that, they should have accepted Jesus' own authority to interpret that Word to them. Likewise, you and I need to know God's Word. And we need to receive God's Word and Jesus' Word as authoritative in our lives. What this means for this series is that we need to recognize the authority of Jesus and God's Word if we are ever going to honor Him with our sexuality. In Matthew 19... Okay, kind of a central text in all of this. Some Sadducees come to Jesus with a question about divorce. And of course, more than anything, it's a test, right? They really don't care about divorce itself. They just want to get Jesus in trouble, probably with Herod. You know, like John the Baptist got in trouble with Herod. And so they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And this is what Jesus answers. Haven't you read haven't you read in other words don't you know what the bible says about these things and then he points them back to genesis 1 and 2 haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and he said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one do you see what Jesus does here he points them back to scripture scripture remains authoritative for Jesus and for all of us Jesus takes them back to the beginning, back to the account of creation, back to the big picture of of marriage and sexuality in God's world, back to our shared story of sexuality and back to our shared story of God's authority in every area of life. That's where we have to begin. Friends, if you've not accepted Jesus as Lord of your life, then very little of of what we say in this series is going to make any sense. If you don't believe that Jesus paid your debt with God with his own blood, that he paid for your sins and that now you belong to him in body and in soul, in life and in death, if you're just not there, you're not going to understand what we're getting at. And, and, And we wouldn't expect you to, okay? And friends, we can't expect the world to see this issue from our perspective. Unless someone has come to Jesus Christ and given their life to him out of gratefulness for what Jesus has done for us, we're not going to get the fact that Jesus should have authority over everything we do. You can't get it backwards. You can't say people should understand a Christian perspective of sexuality without giving their lives first to Christ. It works the other way around. First you have to belong to Jesus. Then you begin to see that everything makes sense that Jesus teaches. In this series, we're going to come at it from the perspective and we're going to assume that the Bible is our authority. On this subject, on every subject. And that's not a popular view today. I get that. Even in the church, it's not a popular view. My wife um, makes fun of me sometimes for watching old television sitcoms, Um, but I caught an old episode of Barney Miller that actually I think helps explain our view of authority today. If you're not familiar with Barney Miller, and I wouldn't expect you to be, it's an old, old show but it was about a bunch of cops who, uh, who worked a precinct in New York, right? And it's a comedy, um, but one of the detectives there, one of the cops was named Wojo, and he was a big stocky guy, and he was an ex-Marine and all of this. And so if anyone knew authority, it was Wojo. And if anyone believed in authority, it was him, right? Authority was his life, the line of authority and accountability. Now, to understand what this episode is about i want you to think of of the emergency sirens that you hear blaring in brookfield every saturday at noon okay we had a similar thing in sheboygan we called it the tornado siren whenever there was a tornado warning the sirens would go off in town if you came from a smaller town maybe they would call the volunteer firefighters to to come and get the truck and head off to the fire right those are the kind of whistles i'm talking about and um Every community has a little different purpose for those things, but at one time, many of them were part of our civil defense system, right? So if we were ever attacked by Canada, you know, the sirens would go off and we could all assemble our our weapons and, you know, maybe our one gun and we could fight them off. Um, Or if there was some kind of nuclear strike, sorry Ken, um, but if there was ever a nuclear strike, then, you know, the sirens would warn us to go down in our bomb shelters and, and that sort of thing so those are the sirens we're talking about those sirens at least for me always gave you the impression that someone was in charge right that someone kind of was watching over us and knew what was going on and knew when it was the right time to press the button and warn everybody right so in this episode of barney miller Wojo is is suddenly handed this big book and he's told that for this week he's in charge of, of civil defense for the city of New York. And it blows him away. He's like, I, he, has, he just struggles with this, right? He struggles with the idea that somebody put him in charge and he has no idea what he's doing and he's struggling with the fact that There's no one out there who seems to know who's in charge. And then besides that, he finds out that the siren on top of the precinct, that doesn't even work. And he's just going crazy, right? Now, what that's all about, I think, is it's really a statement in the timing of this show, but it's a statement about God. And it's the statement that God is dead. Right? that there is no God who's in charge. And really, we're all going to have to figure this thing out on our own. We're all going to have to do life on our own. We are the ones who are in charge. I'm in charge. You're in charge. And friends, that's what people believe today. Okay? That's, that's the air that we breathe. There is no God. There is no truth. There is no one who stands above it all, okay? There is no one who designed the system and who who made the rules for how it works. The big common narrative today is that there is no big common narrative. There is no common narrative that can define us for who we are, and therefore we all get to decide for ourselves, that scares some of us, some of us love it. But that's the narrative that dictates our sexuality today, is that I get to decide for myself. I decide what's right, I decide what's best. Friends, that's not the narrative for God's people. Our narrative is Jesus' narrative. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? Jesus and the Bible are authoritative. What the Bible says about human sexuality must be authoritative for all of God's people. So what does the Bible say? Right? What does the Bible say? The temple teachers got it wrong in Mark 12 in the case of the widow. Does that mean that I'm saying our tradition got human sexuality wrong? That for the last 2,000 years we've been misled? Well, that's what we're going to explore over the next number of weeks. But I will give you a clue And I'll say this. There are some things that we have gotten wrong. We've devoured some people's houses and we've left no place in the church for some of the people who needed it most. We've also often created a fishbowl kind of atmosphere where some sexual behaviors became unforgivable sins while other sins we kind of chuckled over and made room for and for too long a time we have also let our culture be our authority in these matters and not god and i'm not talking just the last 60 years but much much longer we've let our culture define our sexual morals not the bible and so if the culture said same-sex behaviors are wrong we said they're wrong too And if the culture said living together before you're married is okay, we've said the same thing. We've gotten some things wrong. We need to recognize that and we need to confess it. And I hope we can do that. But in the main, I think the church has gotten it right. And I hope that when we're done and we have a long way to go, but I hope that when we're done, we can together agree and say this is right and this is good and this is God's will for us and we will obey. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, there are so many forces and words coming at us moving us one direction or another shaking our stability but lord there's one thing that never changes and that is your love and your love for your church your bride the bride that you gave your very own life for and so lord let us let us lean into that love Let us wrap that love around us so that we will not fear, but we will have courage as we have these discussions, and may this be a safe place to have them, O Lord. May you be right here in the midst of us. May you be around us and above us, watching over us, encouraging us, going before us and leading us. Lord, we trust in you more than in anything. So in your name we pray. Amen.